Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for continuing to join us on this very special day as we continue the NISO experience. I'm NISO past president and planning committee member, Dr. Sal Menenti, and NISO is pleased to bring this session entitled Surgidonics to our NISO experience attendees. We have three presenters in this session, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to our first presenter, Dr. Glenn Krieger. Glenn obviously needs no introduction, but I'm going to do my best uh, uh, getting through it. So, Dr. Krieger graduated from the University of Buffalo Dental School in 1992, along with myself, and moved to Seattle in 1996, where he established a solo boutique restorative practice. Making little money and feeling isolated and stressed out from the day-to-day -day management of a dental practice, Dr. Krieger spent thousands of hours attending every business management and leadership course he could find. He learned about the importance of well-designed practice policies and systems during a year at the Schuster Center for Professional Development in Scottsdale, Arizona, and an understanding of general accounting practices and industrial psychology at the University of Washington Graduate Business School's Dentist as CEO program. Dr. Krieger has presented to thousands of dentists in North America and has published in textbooks and dental periodicals. Dentistry Today has named him top clinician in continuing education nine times. After 20 years as a restorative and cosmetic dentist, Dr. Krieger returned to residency to become an orthodontist and as a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics. He currently maintains a private orthodontic practice in Louisville, Texas, and is the administrator of Orthopreneurs, a Facebook group dedicated to helping orthodontists run their practices with an entrepreneurial bent. Our next presenter is Dr. John Gannon who received his doctorate in dental surgery from the University of California, San Francisco, where he graduated in the top of his class. Dr. Gannon went on to train at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, where he was the chief resident and earned a postdoctoral certificate in oral and maxillofacial surgery. There he trained under Dr. Robert Marks, the leading international recognized expert in bone biology, bone grafting, and pathology. Dr. Gannon's clinical interests include wisdom teeth management, dental implants, bone grafting, corrective jaw surgery, obstructive sleep apnea, facial trauma, and nerve repair surgery. Dr. Gannon lives in Dallas and loves being a contributing member of this great community. Our final presenter is Dr. Stephen Sherry, who received his dental degree from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, graduating first in his class. After earning his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dr. Sherry completed his general surgery and oral and maxillofacial surgery training from one of the top programs in the country at Parkland Memorial Hospital. He concluded his training with a one-year fellowship in cosmetic surgery from Willow Bend Cosmetic Surgery Center in Plano, Texas. Thereafter, he became an adjunct professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Sherry's clinical interests include dental implants and bone grafting, orthognathic reconstructive jaw surgery, and facial cosmetic surgery. Dr. Sherry is the recipient of the OKU National Dental Board Award, granted to the student with the highest national board score, as well as the Leon Eisenbud Award for Excellence in Oral Pathology and Diagnosis. He has penned many publications and has presented at the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, in addition, he is co-founder of the Dallas Study Club. Please help me welcome Drs. Krieger, Gannon, and Sherry for their presentation, Surgidonics. Well, greetings, everybody. Uh, on behalf of my two co-presenters, Drs. John Gannon and Steve Sherry, 
Uh, I want to say thank you first to Sal for that really nice introduction. Uh, I've known Sal for years, back from the days when he was on, I think, a flag football team. Uh, but he's a great guy, and I just want to say thank you to everybody for us having the opportunity to speak in front of all of you here at NISO. Um, it's a great meeting, spoken from the stage, and hope to do it again in the future. Now today, um, you might be wondering why myself as an orthodontist is here with two oral surgeons. And uh, what we want to talk a little bit about today is the role of certain surgical procedures in orthodontics. And as we move through this, we're going to tell a story, and one that's going to hopefully help you when you leave this meeting to be able to be more profitable, maybe do some more fulfilling work, uh, and really get some light shown on stuff that we don't really get to see very often. And so I'm going to be a part of this, but really, this is going to be a surgically driven orthodontic uh, presentation. And so uh, let's jump in and let's get started here and, uh, and talk a little bit about uh, maxillary transverse expansion in the adult patient. And it's going to be more than just this. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. Uh, but, but what you're looking at here is not an adult uh, who happens to need a third central incisor. Uh, this is what the three of us are doing on a regular basis. And, and what we're going to talk about for the next 45 to 60 minutes is really going to hopefully hit home with you and, and help open some eyes in terms of what's really possible in your practices without higher stress, but with higher profitability. So um, let's, let's go through this stuff. Now, for those of you out there who don't know me or haven't seen me speak before, uh, my name is Glenn Krieger. I'm an orthodontist here in Louisville, Texas, outside of Dallas. Uh, my path has been a bit circuitous. Uh, I was a restorative dentist for 20 years and then went back to school to become an orthodontist back in 2012. And so I've been doing ortho for six and a half years. And oddly, uh, I knew Steve Sherry, uh, one of the oral surgeons presenting today, before I became an orthodontist and I had the opportunity to learn from him when I was a restorative dentist. And we're gonna share some of that stuff as we go through it today. So many of you probably have heard of Orthopreneurs and are a part of it. Uh, it's an online Facebook group. The whole mission of this group that I started over four years ago is to help orthodontists lead more profitable, lower stress lives. And that's where this, this talk really goes into. Right now, uh, we're at about 89 separate countries. We have uh, 5,700 orthodontists, and we actually just got Isle of Man. So if you're a huge motorcycle racing fan and an orthodontist, this is the group for you. So uh, there's almost 5,700 of us helping each other grow our practices, uh, lead more profitable lives, lead lower stress lives. And if you're not a member, go look for it, Orthopreneurs on Facebook. Uh, the only qualification is you need to be an orthodontist. We don't let in non-orthodontists. We don't let in spouses. We don't let in assistants. Uh, but if you're an orthodontist, please consider signing up for this. Now, this is a pretty broad topic. There's so much to talk about. And the first question is, you know, where do we begin? Do we begin with orthognathic? Do we, you know, the traditional orthognathic surgery? Are we starting with uh, just expansion in the transverse direction? And again, in the time we have allotted today, there's not a lot we can jump into. Uh, but again, the question is, where do we begin? Well, it's about a few things. It's about time, it's about cost, and it's about resources. So, so let's talk a little bit about the, the time component of it, all right? You look at this case on the left, and you see what it turned into on the right when we were finished. How long should this case take if we're treating it surgically? Now, this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to actually answer this. Um, 
you know, is this, is this going to take us three years, four years, five years? I think there's this, this misconception that we've all been taught in, in our lives as orthodontists that surgical cases are more challenging, more difficult, take longer. And the truth of the matter is, in my hands, treating this surgically, maybe a year and a half-ish, somewhere in that range. Maybe if I'm newer in my career, maybe two years, but no more than that. Um, and so these are not cases should take three or four years. You can see this, this woman in front of you. Now, today's not about showing you tons of finished cases. You saw the Ceph there. You saw what it looked like. Um, but if this woman walks into your office, um, I, can't, I can treat her non-surgically, but surgically is really the traditional way and actually, in many respects, the better way to treat her. And so when we take a look at her case, again, asking how long would this take to treat non-surgically? I've been trained in yaw. So if I want to segmentally intrude the posterior segment, close down the anterior bite, whether with wires or with plastic, I have two choices here. Uh, I can do this with plastic very comfortably, and I can do this with wires very comfortably. But is this going to take me 18 months? Probably not. Probably going to take me a whole lot longer than that uh, to get where I want to get. And so surgically, um, I should be able to get this in a quicker time than I would non-surgically. Uh, and so, you know, which one of these is tougher? Is it tougher to do this surgically or is it tougher to do this non-surgically? And for many of you out there, the reason we're doing this presentation is because when I run entrepreneurs and we talk about this, the general feeling is that for the overwhelming majority of you out there, you would say that this is way tougher surgically. And many of you say that because you're not working with surgeons that make your life easier. Well, I'm lucky enough that I have these two guys here who truly make my life far easier. And so in, in my opinion, surgically is way easier. Now, here's an Invisalign case I, I've done, you know, just in, the, in process. The left is where we started. The right is where we are in progress around, I think this is about nine months in. And yeah, you can close things down posteriorly using certain elastic patterns, using uh, anchorage patterns, segmentally closing. But is that the way I really want to treat this case all the time? Because remember, um, it's about time, it's about cost, and it's about resources. So let's talk about cost real quickly, okay? Um, when we talk about cost, so surgical cases cost more the same or less than non-surgical cases. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. In my office, surgical cases uh, cost more than uh, non-surgical cases. And, and again, I'll ask you, what kind of fulfillment do I get from treating cases surgically? So I, 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 they happen faster, they, they get charged more, and I get way more fulfillment because let's all talk about this honestly. If you have a 12-year-old child and you ask them the day they're getting their brackets or, or attachments off, hey, what do you think of your smile? The overwhelming majority of people will say, I don't know, I really don't look at it. You will never have that with a surgical case, ever. When you're done with surgical cases, they hug you. They bring you gifts. You have literally changed their lives, truly changed their lives. And for me, I like treating the adolescent and teen patient. But for me, surgical, because I've got these two people with me, uh, is really where I get the most fulfillment in my life. And so let's just really jump in real quickly and talk about you know, what constitutes a surgical case. There's a lot of different things that can do it. And, and the second question is, how does this play a role in our practices? And so um, when we look at these cases and uh, you see a, a person like this, 
nothing really crazy. Many, for many of us, this is an arch wire case. Uh, you know, but if you look at her profile on her Ceph, um, very concave profile. And so we can talk about it, proclining teeth and helping with lip support. We can talk about uh, the, the, um, the transverse issue. But for us, we can jump in minimally with a, a type of Marpy appliance here, perhaps, and deal with this surgically, and I'm using air quotes when I say this, where just traditional ortho alone may not be able to solve the problem. Here's another case, uh, which you'll see a little bit later as they go through it. Really nice gentleman, young, smart, pharmacist, very educated guy. We talked to him over and over again about the advantages of surgery, traditional surgery, but he declined. And he declined it knowing fully what the pros and the cons were. But what else do we have? We can't turn them away. There are other less invasive surgical approaches we can do. Okay, now we're going down the gauntlet a little bit to, again, another type of surgical case that we have to treat. But there's both a transverse and an AP approach. Are we going to just do traditional uh, transverse development here? Or are there newer, better ways to do this? And we're going to talk about it. And again, this case, when my surgeons here show this case around orthodontists, it kind of blows their mind uh, about how we treated this without traditional orthognathic surgery. And so we have lots of different ways we can treat this case. And you can see how it turned out, again, without traditional orthognathic surgery. And so, um, you know, we can develop arches in a transverse dimension without having to do traditional SARPI. And so I just, I want to turn it over to these two gentlemen now. Um, this is John Gannon, Steve Sherry, uh, amazing surgeons here uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, we've coined a term together, surgidonics. You're going to see it a lot because it's not traditional orthognathic surgery. Uh, there's many different ways we can address these cases. And it falls under the term surgidonics because it, as you're going to hear, the oral surgeon can't do this by themselves and they don't drive the ship. And the orthodontist can't do this by themselves and they can't drive the ship. This has to be done together. And that's why it's not surgery and it's not orthodontics. This is surgidonics. And it's something we came up with together uh, because that's how we practice together. So gentlemen, Steve and John, I'm gonna let you take over from here and I'll come back in later on so we can uh, finish it up together. Okay, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that uh, generous introduction. So, John and I uh, are in private practice here in Dallas. You know, we both trained at, uh, I trained here in Dallas at Parkland Hospital. John trained at University of Miami in Florida. We've been practicing together for a few years. And, and the mainstay of our practice is really orthognathic surgery and TMJ replacement. So we do a lot of, we do a lot of ortho surgeries. We like to think that we are surgeons for the orthodontist, you know, a lot of surgeons out there, implants, wisdom teeth, other things, but the majority of what we do are orthognathic surgeries, TMJ surgeries, exposures, bicuspid extraction, so on and so forth. So for us, this lecture kind of came out of necessity because we do a lot of orthognathic surgery and the majority of our uh, maxillary surgeries are segmental maxillary surgeries. And you know, we all know that the most unstable thing that we do from an orthognathic approach is transverse expansion of the maxilla at the time of jaw surgery doing a segmental maxillary surgery. And you know, I don't know how it is in the Northeast, but in Dallas, uh, the majority of the orthodontists here are not interested in having their patients have SARPs, you know, all of them will push you to do these large segmental maxillary surgeries and have the patient in retention forever with TPAs and big palatal retainers. And then we still see transverse collapse. So 
like I mentioned before, this kind of came out of necessity. The, the MARP was introduced to me actually by Glenn Krieger, uh, or I should say forced upon me by Glenn Krieger in 2017, I believe. I had actually seen it in a lecture prior, but I was not sold on it whatsoever. And Glenn, you know, requested that John and I try this. And we, the first case we did, it was amazing. We put the screws in and we, you know, patients started turning the key and the patient developed a midline diastema very quickly. But the next four or five I did failed. And I started talking to some of my other orthodontic colleagues here in Texas and outside of Texas. And a lot of them started complaining about this procedure. They wanted to try it, but they had so many failures. And so I don't know what the, you know, what it's like where you all are, but we've found that the failure rate in, you know, if you take all our patients together, if you just place a Marpy with four screws, the failure rate's very high. So what John Ginn and I came up with is a bit of a protocol, a bit of trial and error, but now it, we've ironed out the kinks. And this is a protocol, you can keep going there, John, that allows us to get, you know, from this narrow maxilla on one side, on one side to the more expanded maxilla on the other side. And, you know, the goal is to, you know, begin with a smile like that and get to an, another, you know, broad smile result like this. You can see this patient had a really nice aesthetic result with a big transverse change. And like I mentioned before, you know, trying to do this to avoid some sort of more invasive surgery like a Laforte, you know, segmental Laforte one osteotomy, or for that matter, a SARPI. So the reason we expand in the maxilla in order to create that ideal transverse dimension is for a couple of things um, that we kind of keep as pillars as we start working through this, but really occlusion, stability of occlusion, long-term dental alveolar health, periodontal health, um, and overall stable occlusion throughout the patient's lifetime. Airway, I think, is, for me, one of the bigger components, if not the main segue as the MARPI kind of took hold um, for us, really. I think that a lot of the research, and we'll show some of this, came out of uh, Stanford um, Sleep Medicine and, and their kind of work with the, the MARPI appliance and using it as an application, what they called the dome. But really, for me, their kind of push, um, I think, helped pave a lot of the ways for which we are using it now. So I think airway is a huge component for us. We're, we're always looking at the airway for all of our patients who walk through the door. Um, so this is a big component. Speech and finally aesthetics, which falls lower on our list, but nonetheless drives a lot of patients through the door. So traditionally, we know that in a growing patient, we can very predictively expand them. We have modification of their growth and we use devices such as the quad, quad helix, some sort of rapid palatal expander. We know these to be very minimally invasive in the growing patient, they need to be, um, have minimal compliance. And so these have been um, the mainstay of developing an appropriate transverse width, appropriate uh, palatal bulk um, for our growing patients. However, if you don't have good predictive, predictable outcomes and intercepting these patients during that growth phase, then you land into um, certain problems when you have to expand the adult patient. So traditionally, and Steve and I will say the same thing, but when, when we were in residency, you know, there were two ways that you could expand a, an adult patient. Um, the first is the SARPI, um, which in our minds is basically identical to a Lafort procedure. In some ways, it's a little bit more invasive. Um, so this subjects the patient to have to go under, undergo uh, at minimum two major surgeries. Um, so 
this as well as the segmental uh, Lafort procedure. Um, so trying to avoid these types of procedures, trying to avoid some sort of maximally invasive procedure um, or to limit the number of maximally invasive procedures that the patient would go through. This is really what, where we felt the MARPI um, and this particular application of expanding the adult um, maxilla uh, really um, was going to be advantage for us and for our patients uh, in the practice. So I got to mention that th this talk that we're giving today is, I think, uh, John, this is like, what, a three-hour talk that we give, a four-hour talk with a lot of details in it. So we pared it down because we don't have a lot of time tonight. But, you know, we want to put as much practical information in here as we could. Uh, you know, a big complaint we hear from the orthodontists that we work with, because Gannon and I do a lot of lecturing, is, you know, when they go to lectures, there's some science and some research there, but there's not a lot of good clinical practical application that you can take back to your practice. And, you know, we're really about that. We want you to be able to listen to us, hopefully, you know, for some amount of time tonight and potentially, you know, hear this lecture in its entirety at some point, but be able to adopt this information, take it back to your practice and implement it right away. So real quickly, let's go through this. Uh, this is Juan Moon's MSC. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. You know, 2014, he started his research. I, we, we were introduced to this in 2017. But it's essentially an RPE with, you know, four to six bicortically engaged mini screws through the palate. Uh, this is, you know, classic one moon device here. That BMK is, it was, it was uh, designed, or I think he had it fabricated in Korea. This is Biomaterials Korea. That patent has now been sold to, I believe, Great Lakes Orthodontics. I'm not 100% sure about that. But we use the MSE. Most of our research, what we've done is in the MSE2. The MSC1 is a little bit different. It was the first iteration that they came up with, but it was very similar to, to the original RPE. We use this MSC2. So if you're going to follow this protocol, please make sure that your lab's putting an MSC2 in the patient. Um, but essentially, you know, you place the appliance, put the screws in, uh, and start expanding. Why don't you go ahead there, John? So the problem that we found, again, was that when we put this appliance in patients with the four screws, we were not getting predictable expansion. There were a lot of failures, you know, broken screws, tipping screws, a lot of pain, patients complaining of things. Uh, what I was told uh, from some of the information I got from Juan Moon and all those lectures was that you, you, you turn aggressively until you feel or hear a pop and there's some pain, but, you know, our patients weren't tolerating this very well. So we came up with a uh, stratified protocol with both patient identifiers and different procedures that we put patients into different boxes. So our success rates go from 50% to close to 100%. So it's mostly about patient selection. So I'm going to kind of set up this algorithm and we'll do a few examples um, as well as go through some cases. Um, so it'll help to kind of give you a little bit of a, an idea of what it is, but we also have, um, you know, just some sheets that outline exactly what it is and, and how to kind of deliver it. So you can go to our Facebook group, download um, these PDFs, and then kind of put this into practice, um, hopefully um, right after hearing this talk. So we define three different procedures. Uh, so the type one is what Juan Moon described as the traditional MARPI placement. So the patient goes to the orthodontist, they have the MSE placed, uh, the patient comes back, 
um, with four screws. We place these screws under little IV sedation. Patient goes home that same day. Um, they start activating the device later that afternoon or the following morning. The type two uh, would be traditional placement. And the type two uh, procedure is then, in addition, we do a few um, adjunctive surgical cuts or um, surgical lo loosenings of the suture. Um, so we're going to do midline perforations. And this is kind of in the sagittal plane if you run from anterior to posterior right along the mid-palatal suture. We take a twist drill from any implant kit, you know, one and a half, two millimeters in diameter and just transmucosally perforate basically right from behind the, um, the nasal palatine uh, foramen all the way back um, to the termination of the hard palate. And then right at the anterior nasal spine, we're gonna do a small uh, osteotomy uh, with a very small osteotome. Um, that's a very small vertical incision. I'll show a few examples of what the incision looks like. Again, a little IV sedation, patient goes home that same day. Um, when we start making these bony cuts, we kind of dump them into the category of um, distraction patients. So um, with these distraction patients, we want to um, give them a little bit of a latency period. So we're starting these patients um, activation of the device about five days um, after it's placed. And then the type three procedure is traditional uh, placement. Like Steve said, um, this is a condensed version of what we normally give. And I had kind of alluded to talking about um, the dome procedure as Stan Lu described it um, from the University of Stanford, the sleep center there. Um, we didn't get a chance to go into this, but um, basically Dr. Lu took a bunch of patients and he got um, sleep studies on them. And then they did this particular procedure and found that patients who um, had diagnosed OSA with the polysomnogram were decreased by half. So a, a pretty um, impressive study. And this study was without any advancement of the maxilla. Um, and he called this the dome procedure. So the dome procedure is a type two that includes the midline perforations, the small midline split, as well as uh, two zygomatic cuts just in the uh, kind of piriform area, as well as the zygomatic buttress. So MARPI type one, traditional placement, we'll kind of talk about specifics of MARPI placement and things like that. But if you look at the coronal view on the left-hand side, those screws are a little bit short. They're nice in that they straddle that mid-palatal suture, but you want to make sure that you get bicortical engagement. So you'd want to see those a little bit longer. Um, the type two MARPI, Again, traditional placements plus the midline perforations. If you kind of look in this axial plane, you can see that there's kind of perforations, kind of like if you tear a page out of a, a checkbook or something similar to that. That's what those uh, perforations represent. And then this is a small midline paddle uh, split. This incision is not what we make. So this was definitely for uh, presentation purposes and really before we really started to dial in what we were trying to do. Um, but this is essentially anatomically where it would be, but again, a much smaller incision with uh, very minimal dissection. And then finally, the MARPI type three is again, the type two. And so you see the, that kind of anterior nasal spine uh, split. Um, and then as well as these small bony cuts that are from the piriform kind of out to the, the thickness of the buttress and just right around the posterior. Again, these are all done through very small incisions. I'll show you an example of those incisions, but um, this is more for presentation purposes. John, let me mention something real quick. When we do this talk, we get a lot of 
questions from the orthodontist surgeons, you know, they call us all the time. They're like, why don't you just do a Sarpy? This looks like a Sarpy. So it is important to know that the recovery from these procedures is, is minimal. And, and John keeps harping on this, which it's true. We make very small incisions. You can tunnel this procedure. We use a piezo surgery knife and we can run through these procedures. They take about 15 minutes. It's very quick, but it's important to know that, you know, this access is not what we use, number one. Number two, the convalescence or the recovery from this procedure or any one type one, two, or three is just a few days. That's it. Patients are back to business by, you know, surgery procedure on a Friday, back to business on Monday. So as we've kind of described, so these very three minor incisions, so the red lines uh, denote where we're making those incisions, anywhere from about a centimeter and a half to maybe two and a half centimeters, but very small. Once you kind of give a little bit of undermining um, subperiostally, these incisions will move very freely over the bone. And so it's easy to kind of drag it from you know midline, laterally, um, and so forth as you need to make those cuts. Um, no to gloving, minimal dissection. Um, this is where that thin anterior midline split is. And then these are the two um, lateral splits uh, for the dome procedure. So Marpy type one, or Steve, I think these are your slides. Yeah, so, you know, again, what's novel here is not so much the, these three different procedure types because the Marpy one, Juan Moon is, you know, came up with that, the dome, Stan Lu coined that term. And then the type two, uh, they started doing this. I think we read it in a paper from Brazil uh, some years ago. But what Gannon and I did was we took these three procedures and put patients in different in these different categories based on certain criteria. So we'll show you that next. But essentially, with Marpy type one, traditional placement, you can. There's no latency here. You don't have to allow for you know any neovascularization across any osteotomy because we're not making any osteotomy. And you start turning. We actually. I think there's a lot of um, controversy out there on how often to turn. And, you know, we generally will do two to three turns a day, but if you follow the protocol with the patient selection, you don't have to worry about that pop or that discomfort that the patient might hear because if we put the patient in, type one, in a Marpy type one category, you can start turning right away. I wouldn't go more than four turns a day, but I think somewhere between two and three turns a day makes a lot of sense. And then, it's important that whether you're type one, type two, or three, as that after your last turn, you have to mean you have to keep the appliance in for some period of time. And along the lines of Elizaraz's work, work on distraction, we generally like to leave the appliance for about three months after the last turn. So with the type two and type three, we do allow for some latency about four to five days before we start turning, and that's mostly to let the mucosa here heal because it does get a little bit damaged during the procedure. Uh, we generally will do. Um, you know, somewhere between two, one to two turns in the morning and one to two turns in the evening. It's a standard kind of rate and rhythm for distraction. And of late, uh, John and I have kind of stepped back a little bit uh, and gone to one turn in the morning, one turn in the evening, because a lot of patients will complain about pain kind of in the temporal area as they begin to expand. I don't know about pain, but maybe pressure and you know, comfort is real important in our minds because we're trying to do a minimally, uh, 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 minimally invasive approach for expansion. So we really don't want them to have any discomfort. Yeah, the, the rate and rhythm is, is definitely, um, you know, it changes from patient to patient in, in different applications. So it's something that we're dial in, you know, we change, we go up a little bit one day and come down a little bit another day. You know, one thing, you're missing here is some other protocols that we have in there as far as follow-up visits and how to adjust that rate and rhythm for certain patients. And 
you know, we'll start them out slow, but then they can tolerate more. We'll have them, have them add a, a turn here or there, mostly because the patient wants to get finished with their expansion as quickly as they can, but some can tolerate more than others. So now let's talk about that classification that we uh, came up with. And it's based on the patient, uh, sexual dimorphism, male versus female age, and some skeletal modifiers. So we define an adult patient as over 18 years old, and that's based on the ortho literature loosely, because there are some papers out there that talk about, you know, RP expansion in teens, late teens, up until maybe 18 years old. So we kind of started at age 18 looking at our patients. So for a female between the ages of 18 and 25, and I'm going to go slow here because it can get a little confusing, but for a female patient between years 18 and 25, they are a type 1 MARPI. So you'll do that type 1 procedure. If they're over 25, they are a type 2 procedure. That, and for a male above 18 years old, you really need to do a type 2. So we get this question a lot, you know, patients are a lot of orthodontists are doing this, you know, procedure themselves. And you can get an expansion in a male, maybe of any age over 18 with a type one. But if you want predictable results, if you want predictable expansion upwards of 100% of the time, you really have to kick them up to a type two. So the one thing that you see here is that asterisk, which is the skeletal modifier. So when the skeletal modifier is a positive, which I'll show you in a second, you kick the patient up to the next level. So for instance, we'll give you some examples later, but a female that's less than 25, is a type one, but if they, uh, if their skeletal, skeletal modifier criteria meets the, those critical values, they get stepped up to a type two. So why don't you hit the next one? Okay, so I'll quickly run through just some radiographic um, examples of what this would look like. So uh, for these skeletal modifiers, we um, will look specifically at the ZM buttress or the thickness in this area. Um, so th that's an example of where we would look on the CT scan in kind of a sagittal plane. We'll look at the thickness of the mid-palatal suture. Um, so the way we measure this is from the anterior nasal spine to the posterior nasal spine. We basically draw um, a line from one point to the other, and then we divide that line in half and draw a perpendicular line and then measure the thickness at that position. So for this particular patient, it has a thickness of about seven millimeters. So for the ZM buttress, we're looking for the thinnest portion of the, of the buttress in the first molar uh, region when you measure it kind of bilaterally. And so it's important that you want to try to position the patient uh, as best you can in the CT scan. And if for whatever reason they're not uh, lined up appropriately, try to make those adjustments in whatever software you're using to kind of um, adjust your DICOMs. Um, so that way you don't have any tangential sort of uh, coronal cross sections. But for this particular patient, when you measure there, and I kind of jumped through that, but they were um, at this thickness, so 5.6 in uh, four millimeters. So in our algorithm, in our procedure protocol, um, when we're bumping patients up to a type two, if they're a female and they're under 25, they're getting a type one. And if they had any of those uh, modifiers, so if they have a palatal thickness greater than five millimeters, or they have a ZM buttress thickness greater than three millimeters, and they don't need both, they only need one or the other, 
um, and that will increase them, but it doesn't move them all the way up to a dome automatically. They would just go to the next level if there's another level for them to gain. Um, so it's kind of an ascending um, sort of procedure um, advancement when they have this thickness. So just a couple examples. So here's a 19-year-old female. We look at the mid-palatal suture. You measure the mid-palatal suture and divide it in half, get the thickness of your, uh, of your palate, so five and a half, um, and look at the buttress. And for this particular patient, if we look at the two buttresses, so the right and the left are about one and a half millimeters. So if we have a 19-year-old female, this patient's under the age of 25, so they would be a type one. Um, however, for this particular patient, the mid-palatal suture is greater than five millimeters, so this patient would be a type two. For another example, here's another 19-year-old female, mid-palatal suture, five and a half millimeters, ZM buttress. This would be the same patient, just if you're paying attention. 24-year-old male, so we know a male above 18, any age, was gonna automatically start with the type two. And then we'll go and we'll just check the skeleton to see if there's any thickness here. So we have a mid-palatal suture under five millimeters. So this patient remain a type two. We'll look at the ZM buttress, make sure that they're under three millimeters. So this particular patient is under three millimeters at the ZM buttress as well. So 24-year-old male under the age, or excuse me, 24-year-old male at any age above 18 is going to be a type two. This particular bony morphology falls underneath the criteria in order to advance into the next level. So this patient would stay at type two. And one final example. So this is on a CT scan. So we're looking at a mid-palatal suture of eight and a half. Uh, and then look at the ZM buttress. This is a 56-year-old male patient. ZM buttress is um, a little bit less than three on the right, a little bit more than three on the left. So this patient would go into a type three procedure mainly because of the mid-palatal suture. So if you follow this protocol, you'll have pretty good success. We have a data, John and I have a data set of over hundred patients in a, a, a publication we're putting out, but uh, we've had a few failures here and there, but I would I say at this point, we're upwards of about 97% success rate. So it's important that you follow that protocol if you wanna have good success. So again, back to the MSC, here's the standard uh, type two MSC, comes in at 10, 12, and eight uh, widths. Uh, they can, you can use the one five screw, but the one five screw is really for the MSC one. And I would not let, the labs are starting to dictate some of this stuff. I would not let the lab dictate any of this stuff. I think that it's a good communication between you and your surgeon and you know, pick the, the size that you want and the screws that you want. They, if you can upload a CT scan, to whatever lab you're using. I know that IDX, I believe that's the name of the lab, correct, Glenn? IDX? Yes, yeah, I, I like to use IDX. Identologics. Uh, um, so, yeah, and, and anybody can reach out to me for any questions. I, I can give you a name and I feel like they do the most predictable job as far as placement, but I think it's important to plan this off a CT scan, not so much off a model. Uh, and then the screw lengths are in come between 11s and 13s. For any of your surgeons that are gonna tackle this, which I think is a great idea, they have to have certain instrumentation. A lot of the time we get patients where we, their palate is very high vault. Uh, the MSC, they can't fit in there. And so it's a bit off the palate. So we have uh, screws from you know, other vendors that are longer that allow us to engage the bicortically the, the roof of the mouth. 
You can also have the lab adjust the model and then you can have your surgeon place the appliance for you when the patient's anesthetized because it would be obviously a little bit uncomfortable to place in the orthodontist office unless you gave the patient some local. Uh, so th that's another option about trying to place the appliance a little bit further up in the palate. So I'll, I'll let you run through this one, John, go ahead. So timing of placement. Um, so when we talk about this, we really Glenn has a lot of input here on, on you know, what, what do you do when this patient walks through your office and you're like, okay, I, I want to do a, a Marpy on this patient. Where do you really start? Um, really, we want to know how much expansion do we need? So decompensation in the mandible, getting things upright and, and really, you know, measuring from frication, frication of your sixes or, or some, some sort of marker where you can say, okay, well, I want, you know, 12 millimeters of expansion in this patient. Um, that, that really helps um, with our kind of treatment for that patient if we need to switch out the appliance, if we need more than 10, if we need more than 12 millimeters of expansion. Um, timing is, is early on. Some orthodontists will um, initiate ortho and then come back and do the MARPI a few months later. Some want to have all of the expansion done and then start in ortho um, once you know, the patient has finished their last turn. I don't know, Glenn, if you want to kind of touch on that a little bit. Well, you know, it's one of those things that, um, again, I talked about the dance and it's one of those things that we, we really help uh, work together. It's too much to get into today, obviously. There's a lot to it. Uh, but uh, one of the, the important points I just wanted to not gloss over really quickly, if you don't mind me taking literally 10 seconds, is that many of my peers, many orthodontists who are watching this right now don't even have a CBCT. And so um, a lot of my decisions in the decision tree are driven by the coronal view. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that as they go through this. Um, but really, you have, to, you have to sit with your surgeons if you're not using these guys and, and really talk to them about where do you play a role as an orthodontist? And are they gonna listen to, you know, you wanna decompensate this case before you start and then what? Once they place it, what's the protocol? And so there is a dance you've gotta to learn together. So I hope I didn't, I answered that okay. No, that's a good point. You know, so again, because we don't have the time today, this procedure from a surgery perspective is a very small procedure. You know, we do other things that require a lot longer recovery times, you know, a lot more invasive, but I, we, John and I have definitely felt, and Glenn for that matter, we have found that the devil's in the details for sure. If you are just a little bit off the midline here, if one of the screws is not exactly bicortical, if you don't have this appliance placed just perfectly, you're gonna run into all kinds of problems, things that are not easy to fix. So I think it's important that whoever you are working with, ortho, surgeon, whomever, that your relationship is really close, that you have good lines of communication and that everybody is keeping an eye on things because these cases can go south real quick if you're not careful. So the tooth stabilization or the tooth borne stabilization arms, um, the, these, when we initially were doing this, we were removing them because um, we wanted to, as Juan Moody described, get this pure orthopedic movement where we didn't have any dental change um, during expansion. However, they do provide some sort of distribution of the force um, amongst the, you know, the, the palate and the shelves and helping kind of distribute that for force in a more even fashion. So um, this is definitely follow up for research and kind of um, looking retrospectively at, at what we're doing and, and kind of understanding 
you know, how these are helping us, but we know for sure that we have seen, you know, almost 100% success with the stabilization arms in place versus not taking them out. So, so we're leaving them at this point. Um, this is kind of what we're trying to avoid. Um, so this was a patient um, whose father happens to be a pediatric dentist and uh, he went off to school um, at BYU and uh, sent this picture in and uh, lo and behold, he's a little bit um, canted at this point. Fortunately, he was um, being expanded preoperatively for uh, orthognathic surgery. So he was going to have a Lafort procedure just um, to be able to kind of rectify this. But these are the types of things where the details are so important. And as little as, you know, removing the uh, lateral stabilization arms um, can have this kind of impact. And there were lots of cases where we removed them and never had this type of impact. So is it a placement thing, something like that? We do know that when you keep them on, the outcome is much, much better. Yeah, so positioning the MARP appliance is critical. And again, this, you know, kind of springboards off what John was mentioning is the stabilization arms allow us to keep the appliance exactly centered in all three dimensions. Whereas you can induce yaw and cans and whatnot uh, if you remove those. So, you know, until there's someone smarter than us to come up with an appliance that allows you to remove those, I think it's best to, to leave them on. Uh, so as far as AP placement, we like it. We like the appliance as far back generally as possible. It gets a little bit more difficult at the posterior maxilla as the pallet bone thins out quite a bit, but somewhere in the, you know, somewhere in maybe between the first molars makes a lot of sense. And it's very important, obviously, that the eyelids straddle the midline. In some patients, um, you know, they have a kind of a thick nasal crest of the maxilla. Uh, you can have the lab open the appliance a little bit first. So it's make sure you're making sure to straddle that midline. And this is why you need really good communication with the lab and including a CBCT, but you can have them open that a bit and or you can open it a bit or your surgeon can open it a bit and then place the screws after that. Uh, let's see, so this is pretty good positioning. However, as you see on the left-hand side, John had mentioned this before, those screws are not bicortical and there's a possibility that this one would fail. Moon published a paper not too long ago about the importance of the screws in the back versus screws in the front. And he found that the posterior screws are much, it's much more important that those are bicortical. It can, on a very high vaulted palate with a very thick palate, it can be tough to get bicortical engagement in the anterior screws. So, you know, it's, you have to make sure that they're really bicortical. We take a CT scan with the appliance in the patient's mouth right before they hit the OR so we can measure exactly that distance so we know that we're bicortical because we don't have intraoperative CT to assure that. All right, you can go forward beyond that one. Yeah. Uh, so if you need to expand past, you know, that appliance, either eight or 10 or a 12, uh, it's important to be able to switch the appliance out pretty quickly. It, it's a it's a lot of detail there. We got to move on because we're going to run out of time here. But suffice to say that if you have a question on a switch out, you probably want to give us a call. They are very technically challenging and require a lot of appointments. So, like we mentioned before, we allow for um, the we 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 a lot about three to four months after after the last turn for the appliance to stay in place to allow for consolidation. And it, it does burn a little bit of time. So generally we'll have the orthodontist do uh, some sort of treatment in the mandible while we're expanding on top. Glenn likes to do some segmental treatments 
in certain areas while we're expanding. He can talk a little bit more about that, but you don't necessarily have to just expand alone without treating you know, the opposing arch uh, orthodontically at the same time. So just quickly, some special considerations. So this is kind of more recent, kind of some things we're running into, but these thin patients, you take a scan, you're trying to evaluate their morphology to see if you need to bump them up to a certain level due to thickness, and you look and they virtually have no bone. Um, so when, and we haven't really defined this yet, but it's kind of more of something that you can see. Um, but these patients ultimately are going to get a type three because the screws are just pulling right through the bone and we're not getting any expansion. So, so once we've kind of reduced those um, buttresses or eliminated those buttress resistance points, um, these patients have had successful expansion. And this is an example of one of those patients. Um, palatal tori. So unfortunately for the tori patient, this really needs to be removed prior um, to placement of the Marpi appliance, um, which is not, not the nicest procedure to have to go through before this, but um, we have done it for some patients. Um, so some of the more, I would say, technical parts and things that uh, Steve and I are still working through are, um, you know, these patients where you need unilateral expansion. So this patient has a unilateral crossbite. Um, so how do you kind of fix the right-hand side, uh, or excuse me, fix the left-hand side in order to get expansion on the right-hand side? Um, so the, these patients are, are getting, you know, kind of hemidomes with some fixation appliances, plates and screws on, on the side where we want to kind of hold fix. Um, so you can see you have good expansion for this guy um, in, the, in the correct direction. So just some... Um, uh, examples. So the Marpy type one patient, we showed this patient at the beginning, this is a young girl. She, she was kind of early on in our, um, in our journey through this um, algorithm. So she, she's in her early thirties and she had had veneers and uh, she had wanted to get some new restorations and uh, her savvy restorative dentist um, smartly told her that he probably would not be able to deliver what she was after. Um, with just uh, restoration due to her kind of collapsed um, maxilla, her reduced buccal corridors. Um, so you can see her arch form, um, maxilla and mandible. And so she gets a Marpy type one. This is a video on the left of us placing the type one. This is not how we do it. This is the driver that comes um, with the kit that you order from Great Lakes. Um, we use an implant driver um, to place this, but again, just under some IV sedation and this is engaged. And then after expansion is complete, so preoperatively on the left and postoperative on the right, she had some very good uh, restorative work done, but it could not have been accentuated or kind of um, showcased had it not been in the appropriate position within her face and really expanding her maxilla made a, a huge difference in my mind and really gave her that broad, full smile um, that, that is very attractive. Yeah, this is actually a patient of Glenn's. So, you know, very constricted maxilla, very crowded patient. And again, I think that she was a bit early on as well. We hadn't had our protocol set up, but she did get a type one Marpy and had amazing expansion. You can see very V-shaped maxilla, a lot of crowding in the maxilla and the mandible. Here's her buckle shots. You can see that retrocline lower incisors. And, you know, Glenn felt like he could, and I can let him comment a little bit here, but that with, you know, the use of a Marpy that he could get her all the way to where she needed to be. Here's a CBCT. You can see pretty narrow maxilla there, small nasal airway. 
this is a, a little kit that we put together that you can't buy from one vendor, but it just has all the little instruments that go into our kit so we can place these uh, appliances, the screws and whatnot. We also use an implant handpiece to get this done. So you can see the patient on the left, pre-treatment on the right, post-treatment. And here she is about you know two years in, and I think she's gotten her braces, subsequently gotten her braces off and you can see her close to final result here. I don't know, Glenn, if you want to comment on the motion appliance at all, but most yeah, mostly here to the transverse change is significant. You know, again, um, traditionally, you know, a lot of people do arch wires uh, and passive self-ligation. You know, we, a lot of folks will do really wide arch wires and develop the arch, but I just felt you see where the, the roots are, right? You know, I, I'm not trying to push these teeth out any further. And so, um, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to have a, a compliant patient uh, with an expander and the ability to, you are altering the occlusal plane here, and we can get into this in a longer discussion at another time, but there are certain components to fixing these cases. And one of them in, in class three-ish kind of cases is altering the occlusal plane slightly. And the motion is really good at helping do that. And so um, this is just a great case where you guys really did an amazing job. And again, uh, less than two years, um, I'm pretty happy where we are. And Again, we had some stuff to finish up here, but we got done shortly after this. And we always, you know, go back to that real quick, John. So, you know, this patient, we do talk to these folks about their periodontal support and, you know, corticotomies and grafting and all that. You know, we let the patient kind of pick their treatment, assuming it's, you know, within, within reason. But um, it's amazing about not only the functional change that people get, but the nasal airway change that some folks get. John had mentioned this before. But as I recall, she had significant nasal airway obstruction. And then after expansion, you know, she was sleeping better, more rested during the day, and her nasal airflow improved tremendously. And can I, can I just add one thing for you guys? Um, the two gentlemen you have here on screen are really, really into proper sleep medicine, sleep and airway evaluation. So when we do orthognathic cases, everybody goes for PSG, a laboratory in, in clinic polysomnogram. And so when they talk about sleeping, I don't want you to sort of just throw this out and go, oh, these guys are just talking about sleep, but it's objective. These are guys who really, really follow the airway and the health of the patient. And I've learned so much from them as a result. And there's a right way to do this. And again, the last thing I wanted to throw in here real quick was that when you use a MARPI um, properly set up with hooks on it for class three anchorage, you're getting scalable anchorage here. So if you look at where she started from a molar perspective, um, you know, you can make the argument, maybe the disc was distal, so everything was anterior, and there can be some arguments about that that are fair. But look at the change in the molar relationship um, from where we are. Look at the change in the cuspid relationship from where we were. This is significant. And, and that's the beautiful thing about the MARPI is it allows us not only to get transverse, but get AP anchorage, which I really love. Yeah, here, here's a really nice change. You can see the, there, we do get some scarring in the palate. I don't know if I'd consider it scarring as it's in the mouth, but it, it's just a significant aesthetic and functional change for this patient. Really nice result. Uh, Glenn, why don't you mention this, talk about this case real fast. This sure. was a few years. Uh, she's 70, I think 73 years old. Um, I got lambasted a little bit on this one when I posted in Orthopreneurs because people were like, what are you treating this woman for? You know, Why are you going to put this woman through all this stuff? And the truth of the matter was she didn't go through that much stuff. Uh, she had severe crowding. She wanted to get her smile back. Her restorative dentist wanted to do, uh, I think, a couple of veneers on here. And as a restorative doc, I know you're going to destroy her teeth if you try this. 
So I talked to her and said, look, what if we expand you, get you more room posteriorly, get you bigger arch circumference, be able to move the teeth around. And she's like, sure. And, and a lesson I was taught as a restorative dentist that still applies as an orthodontist to all of us is always present your best care to every patient every time. Let them make the decision about what's right for them. You know, I could easily look and say she's 73. She doesn't want to go through this. Truth is, the moment I presented it, she said, sure. And she ended up going through it. And I'll let you guys pick it up from here. Yeah, you know, she had she had significant air, uh, nasal airway obstruction, actually. We didn't do rhinometry studies on her, but, uh, you know, there's some subjective testing that you can do in the office and whatnot, look at nasal airway. And so she did not come in because of nasal airway obstruction, mostly because of a functional crossbite that she had. But after uh, expansion, you know, she had a major change subjectively in her daytime sleepiness. It was essentially gone. So here you see is she's pre-treatment arch form in the maxilla, you know, much more narrow than the mandible. And then she had a type two Marpy with amazing expansion and she tolerated this very well. Uh, very nice lady, didn't have a lot of complaints during the entire process and, and really did very well. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's fair. People can ask the question, how do patients tolerate these huge diastemas? Well, you warn them about it ahead of time and you tell them, if we do this right, you're gonna have a huge diastema. And what I've learned, believe it or not, is that it actually comes together faster than if I intervene. If I let this just be on its own, <laughs> You'd be amazed at how, how quickly these close up versus us trying to move them at one millimeter a month or whatever it might be. So I mean, some patients uh, do complain. We I've had some restorative dentists, you know, bond the space to make it a little bit smaller in the interim. But like Glenn said, if they're pretty crowded, the space will close fast on its own. So this is a Marpy type two case. Uh, this is the one that um, you know when I first saw this patient and. In residency, they teach you an anterior open bite is a, a case that's only handled by uh, a three-piece um, maxillary Lafort um, in order to uh, kind of move that anterior segment into the appropriate position. Um, but when you kind of step back and evaluate what what really is the reason for anterior open bite, is it a tongue thrust habit? Is it a, is it just you know alveolar crowding or tooth crowding, or does she tr have a true sort of bony issue where she has this uh, anterior open bite or this um, atrophic uh, anterior maxilla. So here is the arch form. Um, so well-developed in the mandible, not poorly developed in the maxilla as well, just a little bit more uh, lengthened, I would say, um, specifically in kind of the pre-maxillary area. This is just expanding on the kit that we showed initially, but this is kind of the kit that we'd use for a type two. Um, just some small osteotomes um, is basically the only addition that we have in here outside of um, you know, our, our general surgical instruments. Um, these are just some videos of the type two. So again, on the left, now you can see we used the implant hand drill um, to place those screws much more uh, efficient. And then on the right-hand side, I'll run these one more time. But we're just making transmucosal um, palatal perforations and these um, run up and down uh, the mid-palatal suture. And then this is a video of where the uh, anterior midline split will go. So this is a, extremely important to run this perfectly down the midline. We'll actually take some radiographs um, during, um, back up there so you can see the radiographs. 
So while this is going in, we'll take a, a couple of periapical radiographs of this appliance. And so we want to see that this osteotome is diving um, right between the MSE um, and that we're, we're on midline in order to give, give ourselves a, an even split on the right and the left-hand side. So as she starts her expansion um, and gets to the end, she actually needed to switch out. You see this is an eight millimeter um, device. However, she got more than eight millimeters, probably closer to 14 or 15 millimeters of total expansion um, at the sixes and sevens. And so preoperatively, this is where she started and this is where she finished. Um, and again, Glenn, you used the motion appliance in her case um, and, and the result is, is fantastic in my mind. Thanks. And she's, and this was one of our earlier cases as well. We learned a lot from this case. And these are just some uh, CT overlays. So they'll kind of cycle in and out, um, but it, it just kind of gives you an idea of the, the, the significant of the bony change. Um, now you do get some tipping, um, some buckle tipping of wherever you uh, end up placing um, the bands uh, onto the Mark B appliance, but this is easily rectified with the ortho uh, post-operatively or post-MSE placement, um, but just significant change, significant change in the, the transverse when you look at the axial on the left, and even more so in my mind when you start to look at the, the nasal airway as well as the, the uh, a, or excuse me, the medial lateral change when you look at the coronal um, overlays. So again, pre-op occlusal shot on the left and post-op finish shot on the right. And as we said before, we've learned a lot. And uh, even today, I would treat that case quicker and differently in many respects. And again, that's, we can get into that more at another time. So we probably got to run through these real quick. We're running out of time. We don't keep it too long. This is Martin. He fits the type three criteria. You know, he really does need jaw surgery. Uh, Glenn had mentioned this before. He's Glenn's patient. He's a clinical pharmacist here in Dallas and, you know, was dead set against jaw surgery. So Glenn said, we'll do the best we can with, a, a, you know, a type 3 Marpy. He's got a very broad maxilla, but an even wider mandible. Uh, so we put him into uh, into a type 3 Marpy. You can fast forward through this. John. And we did do a type 1 Marpy early on, you remember? We told him it did not work. Right. <laughs> we, we told him I'm from. He said this is not going to work more than likely. And he said, "Well, I'm game." He tried it. It didn't work. And he's the greatest patient ever. Yeah. So he expanded very nicely. He did get a little tipping, like John mentioned before, of the sixes, but he got a significant amount of transverse change. And I think Glenn is probably still working on him, but he's. I think he's almost done. Correct, Glenn? Yeah, he's getting close. You know, we dealt with the AP. We dealt with the transverse and. Is it going to be perfect? No, but it's going to look really solid compared to where he would have been. But more importantly, you can see those CT overlays. So Martin got a significant amount of transverse change in the maxilla, and you can see that uh, in the axial view and, and the coronal view as well. Really nice result for him. All right, great. So this is where you get your phone out. Uh, this is our algorithm that we put together. So Take a quick snapshot of this. John will leave it up for just a second here, but you know, feel free to share this with your surgeons, with your other orthodontic colleagues. But if you follow this protocol, you'll have very high success rates with MARPI, upwards of 96, 97%. And like I had mentioned at the beginning, all of, the, these, all of this um, kind of literature and some of the studies that we referenced along with all the other ones that we've kind of used to support um, our 
just retrospective look at these patients is all hosted on our Facebook group. So we definitely welcome you to join that and encourage active discussion on there. And so again, I just want to jump into this and finish this up for you all. The, this is arguably one of the most important views that I will ever use as an orthodontist, not just for Marpy patients, but for everything. And, and the way the roots in the bone are sitting on the lower relative to the upper. And again, if we spend more time going through this in one of our courses um, or one of our meetings, we, we'll go into the literature to really rip this down and, and so you understand it well, but look at where those lower molars are, right? I can expand this or have them expand it, but if I upright those teeth and decompensate them first, I'll put them in the center of the bone and I'll be able to get more width on top. And if you look at the turbinates on this patient, right? Right side turbine is pretty large. And so oftentimes if we can get more room inside, let them breathe better, these people are gonna function better. There's a lot more to it. And again, not to mention all the sinus pathology I find in this particular picture is amazing. But if you don't have a CBCT, um, I'm not trying to sell you a CBCT. I don't get a penny if you buy one, but it really did change the way I look at my patients. And if you don't have one, send it out, but you've gotta have a view like this if you're gonna comprehensively diagnose these patients. So please, please, please do not be that doc that sends me a message. Hey, Glenn, I'm finally putting on my first Marpy on Monday. Any, any tips for me and my surgeon? You know, it's not fair to your patients. It's really not fair to your patients for you to say, oh, I got this great device. Uh, let me just put four screws in it and it'll work. It won't. Sometimes it might, uh, but more likely than not, you're going to see some issues, whether it's pain, swelling, uh, not turning the way it should, the appliance not working the way it should. And again, we've had pioneers who've gone before us who've shown us that this works. But the reason why these two gentlemen started diving and looking at it more is because what they were seeing as quote unquote success rates in the literature was not really what they were finding in their hands. And they're great surgeons. So again, please, um, you need a good surgeon um, in terms of where we're going with this, because this is not, as Ron Peel would say, this is not set it and forget it. And all too often in ortho, you got some really bright people in the room. And, and all too often we see somebody do something good. I got that pearl, let's go and do this. This is not that time. Put aside your ego. Don't feel good just because you put four screws in somebody. That's not the way this works. What you, what you need, realistically speaking, is you need a surgeon who's gonna do a few things for you. They're gonna teach you, they're gonna listen to you, and they're gonna collaborate with you. And that's what I have with these two gentlemen. They've taught me so much about physiology, anatomy, a surgical technique. And when I, as Steve said, when I first brought this, he listened to me and said, he actually said to me, I'm gonna share this, Steve. He said, this isn't gonna work. I said, what do you mean it's not gonna work? Well, there's no physiologic mechanism by which this is gonna work, but it did. And he listened. And you know what the good part was? Now we collaborate, we come together, we try to look at our cases objectively so that I can say to them, hey guys, when I saw this surgically, I don't know if this is ideal. And they'll look at me and go, you know, orthodontically, can you do something a little differently here? And that's putting aside your ego and creating a team that works really, really well uh, with one another. Because while um, I think in this particular picture, I'll be the guy in the tuxedo, okay guys? Um, you know, <laughs> you have to learn how to dance right? Like that's the important part here. And uh, if you can advance a little bit, John, you got to learn how to dance and it's okay. Go to the next one. Um, 
there's some resources for you that I want to share with you. I have Orthopreneurs University. It's a place where we have tons of really, really good educators giving micro learning, uh, ranging from 45 minutes up to five hours. You get CE. It's a great place to go. Uh, thousands of courses have been seen or thousands of hours of courses have been seen at this point. And these two gentlemen gave it in last year's uh, inaugural uh, curriculum uh, on surgidonics on a lot of what you're seeing, but a little bit more depth. And so you can go to courses.orthopreneurs.com if you want to take not just this course, but any number of the courses uh, that we've gone through. Uh, we're putting together the third annual symposium for surgidonics, which is going to be amazing. The hotel, the Senesta Hotel, uh, where it's happening in Fort Lauderdale is going to be amazing. The room it overlooks the ocean with four glass walls. So please stare at the screen, not the ocean. Uh, but the great thing about this is myself, Steve, and John are going to go into some really great details about a lot of orthognathic and MARPI stuff that we're going to talk about. But even better, I have to say, guys, even better. Uh, we've got John, uh, John Holmes, who's the surgeon for David Sarver. So David and John are going to give... Uh, a good eight hours of lecture on orthognathic and the new paradigms for the 21st century of how we should be looking at this stuff. And even better than that is uh, it's going to be a, a limited to 75 doctors, uh, no more than 100 guaranteed. And uh, it's going to be a chance for us to sit, have a great time with all meals included so that we can sit and enjoy each other's company. Uh, and you get a chance to sit next to David Sarver and ask him a few questions over a, you know, a scotch or a fresca uh, or to sit with, you know, and say, okay, uh, how should my surgeon do this stuff and what have you? So this is going to be a great, uh, a great uh, few days down in Florida where we can all learn from each other, February 24th, 26th. And so, you know, if you, you'll see that this is the Institute for Orthognathic Surgery. This is where these gentlemen practice. This is where they do a tremendous amount of surgery. And, and as a byproduct, I've gotten to do a lot more surgery myself. And I got to be honest, I love doing it. It's a blast. It's my most profitable thing. And if you want to reach out to them, right, guys, go to IOSUS. Uh, dot com iosis.com uh right soon we're building this site currently <laughs> yeah so go there now meg, meg actually has our meg has our emails that you can contact us anytime if you have any questions and we urge you to sign up for the surgeonics meeting you know it's about the collaboration between the surgeon and orthodontist so if you want to learn all things surgery ortho this is the meeting this is this is your resource to, to learn resource to learn a little bit more about that uh, I, I'll let the other two gentlemen say goodbye, but I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to Niso for allowing us to do this and for trusting uh, when I asked them, hey, can I, instead of giving an ortho lecture, can we do this as an orthosurgical lecture? And for them saying okay to that. Yeah, thanks so much, Glenn. And, and thanks to everyone at Niso. We really appreciate the opportunity uh, to share with you a little bit about what we're doing here. Thanks, Niso. Hope to see you all in Florida in February. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Krieger, Gannon, and Sherry for bringing this wonderful session to NISO. You guys did an amazing job, definitely hit it out of the park and was a true upper decker. And thank you to our NISO experience attendees for joining us this afternoon. Be sure to take the test and complete the session evaluation in order to receive your CE credit.